Welcome to Sibyline Podcasts, part of our Insight series, where we aim to provide relevant, timely, and actionable analysis in discursive format. We hope you enjoy listening and welcome any feedback. Please visit our website for more Insight series updates. And as always, like, subscribe, and share. Hello, and welcome to our Sibyline podcast series. I'm your host, Leo Collins, and joining me today are Conrad Petratus, Sibyline's lead America's analyst, and Eduardo D'Ambraga, Sibyline's associate Latin America analyst. Today, we will be discussing the novel developments surrounding the prospects for a peace deal between the Colombian government and the National Liberation Army of Colombia, or ELN. Eduardo, I understand that we have had some news out of both Bogota and Caracas as of late. Please tell us more about that. Thank you, Liu. That is correct. It was clear that that was coming. In fact, if we go back to when Pietro was elected, we can see that from the beginning he has been very vocal in his intentions to promote this conversation with ELN, as well as the ELN, although this arrangement came with a list of demands from both sides. This is really a very delicate issue as opinions are divided in the country between those who want talks and those who believe that ELN uh, and other criminal groups should continue to be confronted militarily. So uh, after several attempts to reintroduce talks with different Colombian uh, officials to set a framework for a possible peace agreement and then repeated efforts, I believe that we are now likely to see under Pietro uh, government greater engagement between the parties. A sign of this, for example, was the meeting held on um, 1st of November between Maduro and Pietro to discuss how to, to lay the groundwork to begin negotiations. Thank you very much, Eduardo. So let's take a step back for a second. Conrad, how how did we reach this point? Yeah, Leo. So uh, the ELN has negotiated with around uh, seven Colombian presidents throughout its history. For our purpose, we're interested in the last round of negotiations that began right around 2016. These were started with a right-wing president, Duque. The talks were initially based in Ecuador, and there was, the best way to put it, there was never a real impetus or momentum from either side. From the government side, what you could call right-wing backbenchers were never interested in uh, engaging in real demobilization talks. And the ELN, by its nature, as a fragmented guerrilla, without a strong leadership, had several internal divisions that um, became apparent and it never gained significant momentum. The talks were halted, however, on January 2019 after car bomb detonated in Bogota. The car bomb targeted the uh, Santander Police Academy during a graduation for uh, several hundred cadets, killed right around uh, 20 people, injured over 60. I'll touch on this because the incident itself is incredibly interesting. It was a car bomb and the perpetrator was killed during the attack. This raised uh, several flags because there's never been a suicide car bomb attack in uh, Colombia. And the perpetrator was also a very high-ranking or mid to high-ranking official inside the ELN. There were some suggestions that he had terminal cancer. That's what, what happened. I think the consensus for the security community or where they landed was basically it was either a fault inside the car bomb or detonated um, without his knowledge. But what's also important about this is that the perpetrator was an explosive export expert for um, the ELN's Northeastern Front that operates in Venezuela. So there's reason to suggest that by taking him out of the picture, the ELN have lost 
some capability in recent time. We don't know if uh, they've uh, regained that, but um, it's it's just important to know. Okay, and why negotiations in Caracas as opposed to say previous staging areas like Ecuador or Cuba? So. Caracas and the ELN have uh, always had a very close relationship. We know this from uh, laptops and documents that were found in the Raúl Reyes camp. Raúl Reyes was a FARC commander, was killed by the Colombian military. We know that the FARC either had suggestions or strongly believed that the ELN had financed uh, Chávez's, uh, that's Hugo Chávez, the former president of Venezuela, so that the ELN had financed Chávez's run for president in 1999. We don't know if those contacts continued. But what we do know is that after Chavez died in 2013, his replacement, Nicolás Maduro, did take up a much more active relationship with the group. So right after Chavez dies, 2014, 2015, and right up to 2019, you could argue, Maduro never had that much control of the, the country. There were several spikes in civil unrest. And uh, there was considerable political volatility. There was considerable civil unrest, moreover, in um, the Andean region of the country. So that would be Merida, Táchira, Trujillo. These have been historic hotbeds of uh, civil unrest in the country. And uh, there, there is enough evidence to suggest that Maduro entered a pact with the ELN, allowing them to gain significant territory and allowing them to gain significant control over medium-sized population centers to suppress that dissent and um, allow them more or less to govern in other areas. So that that's basically it. You could still argue that both are um, political as well as security bedfellows. Sure, but what are the actual prospects for Venezuela acting as an impartial host? To put it bluntly, none whatsoever. As, as I said, Venezuela and the ELN are, uh, are political bedfellows right now. The Venezuelan military has very little military control over areas where the ELN has a significant presence. So if Venezuela were ever to attempt to pressure the ELN in any significant manner, there's there's no reason to think why the, the ELN won't uh, retaliate and just gain more territory than they already have. We've seen this past couple of years when the military has attempted to gain, gain back access to territory that has been lost by the guerrilla, especially the FARC dissidents. The FARC dissidents push back and uh, the ELN can push back as well. So th- there's this uh, entente cordial between um, both Caracas and uh, the ELN that will probably remain and will prevent them from being, will prevent Caracas from being impartial. That said, I, I think what's most important is that Caracas doesn't need to be impartial because Petro is looking for a quick political win from here. So. Petro will likely attempt to negotiate with the central command and the middle ranks in uh, Colombia. And um, after he gets a a quick deal, he will attempt to demobilize some factions. But my my hunch is that he'll try to avoid the incredibly powerful fronts that operate in Venezuela. Okay. So what's your forecast for these negotiations? So as we said, our our base case scenario is that the negotiations will wrap up fairly quickly. They, I I do believe Petro is being honest when he suggests that he wants demobilizations in Colombia and to incorporate a lot of uh, guerrilla members back into society. Demobilizations in Venezuela, however, are very, very unlikely. 
the friends that operate in Venezuela are that they're still making significant amount of returns just out of smuggling and uh, narcotics production, like kidnapping as well and uh, extortion. There's no reason to think they'll be attracted to a peace deal this moment. That said, the guerrilla is also incredibly fragmented. So we, even in Colombia, we might get some fronts that will splinter off and uh, suggest that they don't want any peace agreement for the simple fact that they don't believe the government can be guaranteed for their security or they're still incredibly profitable in um, their criminal activities. The real question is, is whether ELN top echelons can keep those lower rank individuals in line and get them to agree to a negotiated settlement in the near term. Okay. And... Assuming that the middle to lower class ranks behave and don't act as spoilers, what are the real world consequences of that, Eduardo? Yes, just uh, adding to your question, uh, negotiations are also complicated by the nature of ELN. I, I believe Conrad touched on this, but uh, the, the group is not a rigidly hierarchical, centrally commanded insurgent. Uh, insurgency, but um, a federation of semi-autonomous regional networks that we call war fronts. So the uh, NL um, decision-making process required this often uh, fragmented uh, fronts to reach a consensus for important decisions. That said, it is likely to promote a, a lower risk of shootings and kidnappings in the border areas of Ecuador, and in particular with Venezuela. A lower incidence of uh, IEDs attacks is expected. Uh, for example, uh, there is a crucial pipeline uh, producing an average of uh, 200 10,000 barrels per day that pass through Catatumbo and it is vulnerable to sabotage and the application of illicit valves used to steal oil. Since 2020, there has been an escalation of the cocaine conflict, uh, cocaine conflict in the region, a significant number of incidents. Yeah? And, and, and those have a chance of being uh, resolved if an agreement is reached. Once it works, the agreement will certainly be welcomed by the community, the business community, in particular the extractive industries, including oil and gas companies. And if they don't behave, what triggers do we need to look out for? Uh, Conrad, maybe you can take this one to wrap things up. Yeah, before we wrap things up, I'll, I'll revert to a comment that Eduardo made about Caño Limón Coeñas. That, that's an incredibly interesting case study. This pipeline's hit on an average of once uh, every two weeks by the ELN fronts that operate astride the border between Colombia and Venezuela. It's colloquially referred to as La Flauta, translates to the flute. So you, you can imagine how many holes that, that pipeline has. And more importantly, uh, the environmental damage that gets caused every single time that pipeline gets uh, blown up by the guerrilla. Reverting back to the triggers. So triggers for escalation are obviously overt dissent by ELN fronts operating Colombia. That, that would be very important in large part because we expect some level of, of dissent already from the fronts that are operating in, in Venezuela. And then the other things that are, are interesting to look out for are just spoilers that we've seen throughout the years. So those would be things like uh, high-profile kidnappings of politicians or mid-level security security forces, police, uh, military. And also, just as happened in uh, 2019, high-profile ID attacks. As, as I mentioned uh, earlier, we, we don't believe that the ELN has that capacity at the moment. 
but they're still able to deploy smaller IEDs incredibly efficiently. And then for triggers that would decrease pensions, it would be just solid commitment from, um, again, those mid-level, mid to lower level ranks in the guerrilla. And it would be a significant decrease in overall incidence of shootings, IEDs, extortions. Uh, we might see those in the Colombian border with Venezuela and uh, Ecuador. As I, as uh, Eduardo alluded to earlier, there is some lag time there that we'll have to see. Even though we expect negotiations to go fairly quickly, they will probably start in the next uh, week or so. The peace deal or the trajectory of previous peace deals suggests that negotiations might go on for several, six, seven, eight months, even before we get tangible results out of there. Okay, Conrad, Eduardo, thank you both so much for your thoughts. And thank you for listening. For any further information, please contact info at sibyline.co.uk. Bye for now. <laughs>